Today's reading comes from the book of Isaiah. It can be found on page 1076 of the Church Bible. It's chapter 11, starting at the first verse. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy, with justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around will lie down. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for these words, which though familiar, uh, we ask that you would wash us with them afresh, that we would be reminded of your great love for us and our place in your plans. And Father, however we amen this morning, we pray that there would be something here that would encourage and help us. Amen. Uh, this week, we face uh, choices in a general election. Uh, the choices may or may not suit you. You may despair at the choices that are be offered. You may be confused by them, uh, or you may be looking forward to the opportunity to place your mark against somebody's name. Uh, but it is without a day of big choices. And one commentator said in a, in a similar sort of scenario, it's a shame they can't all lose. Because we're, you know, when we're honest, when we're honest that, you know, not, not one is going to fit everything and it's going to be a hard, uh, difficult day. And I know that the, this, this, this period of uncertainty causes uh, uh, unnecessary uh, anxiety and, and distress and worry. And we need to be minded of that. But we also need to hold on to the promises of God which are more than the political parties and uh, national circumstances uh, around us. You see, in Isaiah's time, when he is writing, their kings had faced very similar uh, big choices. If I show you the picture of uh, this, this map here, 
uh, the, you can see it's made its way through time down towards Judah. And it's going through Israel at this time. And it's engulfing the world around them. The Assyrian war machine uh, was, was well more advanced than anything that any of these other nations uh, could manage. And they would raise to the ground anybody who dared to step in their way. And Israel and Judah both had a succession of kings who were obviously terrified by this. And increasingly, as you read through the Old Testament, and I know some of you have, when you read through the Old Testament, you see that each of these kings becomes less and less reliant upon God's faithfulness and more and more upon making treaties with nations that might help them stand together to the point that all of the wealth, all of the income, all of the majesty and glory of, of Israel at its greatest stage under Solomon was spent trying to buy their way out of trouble. And that's not a political comment, that's just the state of the nation. And the kings had become less and less reliant upon God. They turned to Egypt. They turned to help. Egypt uh, turned their back on them. It was a very difficult time. And yet, for the people who needed reminding of their place in God's plans, Isaiah is blessed with a vision of a future king who would come to Israel's rescue and restore the people, the nation who put their trust in him. And he is an unlikely uh, king. Um, he is uh, coming up from the stump of Jesse. Uh, if you know the name Jesse, it relates us to the, to the line of David. Uh, and we read that that's in, in the earlier chapter. If, you just, if you've got your Bible open and you see verses 33 and 34 of the previous chapter, you can see that when Assyria comes, lofty trees will be felled, tall ones will be brought low. He will cut down the forest thickets with an axe. And Lebanon will fall before the mighty one. And the picture is of Assyria's destruction just leaving the people of God like stumps in the ground. No hope, no life, no growth, nothing. Devastation. And so when we see uh, this next phrase, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, we are reminded of God's promises to David. And David was promised by God, I'm sorry it's a little small, uh, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. And when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. This is a lovely reminder from Isaiah about God's promises to establish a kingdom that would last forever, that would rule the way he would, that would treat the people the way that God would, treat, would want them treated, that would benefit them. And they have little sign of this, but God wants to promise his goodness to them. And we should be reminded of his loving kindness for them and his loving kindness for us. We should not allow ourselves to be so crowded in that we forget that God may yet do something with this.
Because as history played out in the Middle East, years later, centuries later, we saw the line of David re-emerge. It was not lost. We saw Jesus appear in a quiet, miraculous arrival in a town that almost everybody had forgotten. We read that as a child he had been a refugee to Egypt and had returned to learn his father's trade as a builder. These are not the credentials of a man born to be king. When, you sort of, when we read the papers and we read about the backgrounds of our potential leaders or, or we, we've just started watching The Crown on Netflix, you get a sense that there's a dynastic thing going on and yet there's a richer, deeper dynasty that's at work. There's the promises of God. There's the bloodline of David being made real in Jesus Christ. There's the rule of God not being forgotten and appearing. What a wonderful reminder that it's not about putting our trusts in titles and riches and pedigrees. It's about putting our trust in God who sent his own king. And he's a good king. He's more than a good king. Some of Israel's kings weren't awful. Uh, some of them were reasonable. Uh, but we have not just an unlikely king, we have a divine king. If you look in your Bibles in verses 2 through to 5, and especially uh, verse 2, we see that the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and of power. The spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. It's fair to say that by the time Isaiah was preaching this, by the time this message came, people had pretty much given up in the belief of the human spirit to save ourselves. They had given up on the idea that there were people who were any more in tune with God to help them in any meaningful way that we can do nothing on our own. It wasn't just a succession of kings, it was a rebellious people. Though the kings were morally and spiritually bankrupt, less and less devoted to the Lord, they led many people astray. But what Isaiah sees is a king of a different order, a king with God's spirit upon him. This king, this king, would live and act out of a divine life. His life would be so in tune with God. His relationship with God would be obvious. People said in the Gospels, we can see you're a prophet. They connected those things with Jesus because the very breath of God was about him. The very presence and breath of God, his spirit saturating his life. This king, this king would act for, from God and for God. Look at verse 2. He would um, rule people with divine and perfect knowledge. He would live a life that would be accountable, faithful and true and righteous. Verse 5, righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. His very character is marked by his integrity. His qualities of, uh, are so evident and he would be able to rule with justice and righteousness because not only does he have perfect knowledge through his relationship with God but he is not fooled look at the second half of verse three he was not be fooled 
by appearance or rumours. He knows the truth. He knows the truth about the people he rules. He knows the truths about each of us. He's not fooled by how we want to present ourselves. He doesn't listen to our counter-offer. He wants to know. He knows us and wants us to know that he knows us. And he will judge rightly and fairly for the poor. The mark of a good king in, in Israel's history was that they took care of the poor. The evidence was that they trampled all over them wherever possible, sometimes for fun. Look at Naboth's vineyard. Kings took advantage of the poor wherever they could. That is not the sign of a good king, a good leader. And he is judging rightly because he is not impressed by status. He knows about our CVs and all the things we've accumulated and our accolades. He's not put off by them. He's not intimidated by them. He knows who we are. He's not going to be thrown out because of our status. And his judgments will not be based on our causes. His judgments will not be based on things that we think are necessarily important. He will strike the earth, do you see that second part of verse 4, with a rod of his mouth. He will make decisions based not on earthly pressures and earthly causes, but on heaven's agenda, on God's manifesto, on God's plans, on God's uh, uh, initiative. He's looking at us from a heavenly perspective. He sees us the way God sees we could be. He's working on bringing us to that place. When Jesus grew and, and began his ministry, his own baptism, witnesses showed, uh, talked about his divine origins and relationship. Those voices from the, from the clouds torn apart in, heaven, in opening up the heavens. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus' teaching amazed people. It was like nothing they had ever heard. His inclusion of the poor relieved their sufferings and his obedience to God showed what life can be like when you have the proper fear and awe and love for him. Even to the point of dying and to the point of being risen again, raised again in Christ for his glory. He was unlike any king before and any king we've ever had since. So I ask the question, why would God send such a king? Why not just send better kings and beat up the ones that were rubbish even more? Well, because God wants to establish a different kind of rule, a different kingdom on the rule of earth. If you follow the thread of Isaiah's words through this second section here from verses 6 onwards, you can see that this king has not come to make ordinary people do what they're told or establish some new political system or an economic system. We actually just see a kingdom in which harmony and peace will overcome. And the pattern in these verses, uh, which if you took them literally would end up in circles, but if you see the general pattern in this poetry, we see that those that were once helpless will now be at ease with those who were once dangerous. Those who were helpless would be at ease with those who were once dangerous. And they would all 
depend on the leadership of a child who demonstrated his trust in God. And he would draw all these people to himself. Such a kingdom would be a flag, a banner, a sign that God was doing something and people would rally to it. They would be searching for it. They would flock to it because it met their deepest needs. And our needs are to know that we are not uh, lost. Our needs are to know it's not a disaster, that we can be redeemed, that we're not going to be judged on our appearances, our status and our ability, but on the very fact that God imagined us before time began and still loves us. His promises are to help us and save us. And we can easily forget and lose sight of those in the busyness of life, the confusing world in which we live. We lose sight that we were made for relationship with God. And we can lose sight that because some things here are 1% different, that suddenly our world collapses. And the reality is that that's not that big a change. And we ought to hold on to the promises of God because they are eternal. It's too easy to forget God's kindnesses are always ready. There is nothing, nothing we can get into that he can't help us get out of. It doesn't mean he will uh, let you off, but he will get you, the person he imagined you to be, through it. The person he wants you to be will learn and enjoy uh, the experience of having God's faithful hand in your life. It's too simple otherwise to believe that Jesus came to show us a kingdom life and then not invite us to follow. So I wonder, are we spiritual people? Are we a spiritual people who are able to be part of this divine idea? Are we able to join in this movement in which he calls us to be part of it? Are we able to acknowledge that our, our own spirit who we are inside is not going to save us. It usually makes things worse. Are we able to say that I have the capacity to be spiritual, but I know that mine on its own is too weak? Are we able to invite Christ into our lives? Perhaps you've done that in the past and you've, you've, enjoyed, uh, you've enjoyed his faithfulness, but that was a long time ago. And the memory seems faint and the words quiet. Have you never asked, Jesus, would you help me with this? Frustrating and the ideas that popped into your head later turned out to be the way forward. If only we'd listened earlier. Over the weekend, uh, we were trying to fix uh, my younger son's stereo. Um, and I had plugged it in wrong. And in my head, I've been wondering, oh, I wonder about this other plug, I wonder about this other plug. And then I invited some kind of technical genius around, and they just said, oh, you wanted it in that plug. Well, that was the plug I'd been thinking of. How often is my life like that? <laughs> How often do we ignore or become too busy to listen to God's quiet voice saying, you know what, give this a go. Because we're meant to be in, gen in conversation with him. I I I've loved this book by Dallas Willard, The Divine Conspiracy. Spiritual people are not those who engage in certain practices. They are those who draw their life from a conversational relationship with God. They are those who are able to articulate and talk about the things that are going on in our lives. 
That's, that's what Jesus promised in John 10. My sheep hear my voice. They know my voice. It's about a relationship. It's about a conversation. It's about walking together. And if those voices seem faint to you, then, and if you've never tried or you've never heard, then I encourage you today, today, make some time to just talk to God about how things really are. Because here's a God who deals with things as they really are and promises to lift us, carry us, drag us, if necessary, through it. And may the breath of God be about you. Amen.